This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Yesterday night, as we were actually getting ready to go on the show, there was an announcement being made at McMaster about a huge $15 million gift that was going to the university, to the health center for research into aging. Now, this is, this is interesting because it's not something that is maybe the height of glamorous, I suppose, in the medical world. I mean, I don't know, but it doesn't seem like we spend a ton of time thinking about it. And yet we're all heading down that road. We're all getting closer to it. And as I said a minute or two ago, there is going to be a very high percentage, 25%, over 25% in a few years of Ontario Canadian residents who are going to be considered seniors. So these are issues that, that we want to be studying. These are things we want to be knowing about. And this, this money is specifically going towards how do we keep seniors in their homes? How do we let them be more mobile? How do we keep them active? Dr. Stuart Phillips is a director of physical activity center of excellence pace. He's also the director of McMaster center for nutrition, exercise, and health research. He joins me now, Dr. Phillips. Thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure, Scott. Uh, Let me start with what I just, um, what I just said there. Aging as a area of study doesn't seem to me anyway to be something that falls into the pardon the phrase but sort of the sexy science kind of category we like to study cancer and other horrible diseases and and we see the real merit and the value and everyone's happy to give money towards those things you never hear about people studying aging why not yeah i think because most people uh, probably realize that it's inevitable we're we're all heading in that direction but it is uh, it is something where we're all going so uh if you call it a disease, I suppose we've all got it, so to speak. So, uh, yeah. yes, it's not quite as glamorous as the uh, the high-profile diseases, but it's uh, just as important. Is it a struggle, though, to to attract attention for something like this? Because, again, it just it doesn't have, and I don't know what the right word is, the, the, the zing quality or whatever. It, just, it, do, it seems that it would be harder to get people to really be interested, or at least that, that's my perception of what it is. Yeah, I, I think that it, it's interesting for people to realize that uh, in about 2050, there's going to be 9.5 billion people on the planet, and that's not due to the fact that we're having more kids. It's due to the fact that we've added 30-plus years to our life expectancy. So people are getting older. Uh, there's more people in the, as you said, over 65 category, but over 80 category, over 90. And I was commenting to somebody that you can walk into any card store now and find not one but several cards to congratulate people on their 100th birthday. So <laughs> it's a sign yeah. that um, everybody's getting older and living longer, and so we want to have people live more productive lives. Well, you're absolutely right. And, you know, you sort of, it used to be a, a rarity when you would see something in the paper for someone living to be 100, and now I, I'm guessing that if you probably went to almost any senior's home, there's going to be three or four. Exactly. It's, it's not uncommon, and I think that the projections are is that the current generation of baby boomers would see uh, at least twice the amount of 100 or centenarians um, living for that long. So it's it's definitely not an oddity anymore. I will say this, though. I don't know that we need to study this, because based on all the interviews that have ever been done with these seniors who have turned 100 in the seniors' homes, uh, a glass of brandy a day and a lot of fatty food seem to be the secret. <laughs> yeah, I think that the... Uh, the underlying opinion is that probably some people can get away uh, with doing a lot of that and have no problems. Um, we, we do think that there is a, a genetic program that predisposes some people to grow old, and we're not really sure what hmm. that is, but that's being studied. I think for the majority of us, however, and I'm not hacking a glass of brandy by any means, but uh, being physically active will be the yeah. key, I think. 
Just before we move along, is the fact that we don't necessarily spend as much time talking about this area of study, do you think it has anything to do with the fact that you just alluded to? We're all going there, but we're all a little uncomfortable with the idea of being old. And so we'd rather just say, eh, I don't want to think about it. It's like writing a will almost. That, that may be part of it. I, I do think that people are becoming more interested because there's more of us that are heading in that direction. And the baby boomers are essentially leaving, leading this, this wave of research, if you like, uh, depending on how you define them. They're in their late 60s, coming on 70 now. And uh, I guess beginning to get a sense of, um, you know, their, their last few decades of life and saying, well, we really need to do something about it. So you're talking about these huge numbers, and, and they are huge numbers of people who are either there now or going to be there soon. And yet I understand from reading up a little bit on this just before I came in today, the amount of money actually being spent, though, on researching senior issues, aging issues, is incredibly small relative to everything else. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And, and, and it's been a research agenda for us at McMaster University. Researchers spotted all over the university from every single faculty. So it's not just a health science issue, it's a science, it's an engineering, it's a social science, it's a humanities issue. And the bottom line, I think, is that uh, the growing interest is just with the realization of what is going to happen to society with this number of old, older people. It's, um, it's incredible to think. I, I, and I mean, I've said to a lot of people, I don't think uh, 65, the traditional retirement age, I, I don't think that's old age anymore because people are looking to live at least another 20 or 25 years. Is part of this due to the fact that many of the issues that we, that most people would face, the health issues that we would expect to face as seniors, we don't necessarily lump in just as a senior thing. We might get cancer. You might have Alzheimer's. You might have something else. Now, that one's definitely considered an older person's disease, but there's a lot of things that would be studied separately, so we don't actually have to throw money into the aging thing because we're studying all these things elsewhere. That may be partially true, and it's probably, I think, fair to say that for all of the chronic diseases that you've mentioned, heart disease, diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, etc., um, age is a, is a primary and, and, and bona fide risk factor. So maybe the thought is, is that, well, that's just an old person's disease. But a lot of people, they realize the older they get, their risk for these things goes up. And so it's sort of lumped into um, you know, a disease rather than an, an aging category per se. But um, most of the mobility issues are slightly different for older people. And there is a, a big push, obviously, with this uh, award from Chancellor Labarge to uh, to increase the mobility of older people. Right, and as you say, this is specifically designed, as I understand it, to find ways that older people can stay more mobile, can stay in their homes, can have more independence, don't have to be, I guess, what the idea, you don't have to be moved into a senior's home or have someone look after you. The longer you can be independent, the better. Oh, exactly, and, and whether that's mobility, as you define it, about moving and walking around or being able to drive for longer or being able to use public transportation, but that's going to fundamentally change how people think about um, where they would live as they get a little bit older. Are there communities that are being built and designed for older people? Uh, Because there's going to be a lot of them, and I think that uh, it's maybe not on the uh, radar of a lot of people. The politicians now are beginning to realize that we need to put into into place some long-term strategies to deal with the sheer numbers of people that are going to be in their 70s, 80s, and 90s and maybe not able um, to drive themselves, maybe not able to care for themselves, and what are we going to be able to do? So 
mobility as it's variously defined is is critical as we get older. I know this is going to be a stupid question, but I was always told there's no such thing as a stupid question, so I'm going to test that theory right now. What's the advantage? Why do we want seniors staying at home longer than they are presently? I think the biggest thing is is to realize is that old age doesn't mean you're not contributing anymore. And so being mobile and being connected and being in touch with even uh, people working into their uh, late 60s and early 70s, being able to uh, stay in touch with a, a social network and friends uh, is, is critical. And the burden, if you like, of what would happen if that weren't the case is quite substantial from a health standpoint. So I, I, I think it's, it's definitely not a stupid question. It's really one of those situations where the realization that we can keep people mobile for longer in their lives, they have a more fulfilling life on a personal level. But not only that, the, the payback to society is much greater as well. So it's, uh, it's a huge issue. Well, and I would also guess that financially, to be able to have people not involved in the system as much would be far, far, far cheaper because the cost for health care and other things, as you add all these new seniors, it, it's just going to go up. Yeah, ab- ab- absolutely. And, and uh, I mean, that's the one aspect that I think a lot of... Uh, politicians see as the bottom line, but, but it's, it's just that to us, it's a small part of one of the reasons why we want to keep these people mobile as they age. No, but you know, when we talk about investing $15 million into this, usually you would look at the investment part of saying, oh, I'm investing in the quality of someone's life, which is true. But in this case, it almost sounds like the investment really is investing financially. If we put $15 million down and can find a couple things that might lead to people being able to stay at home, we might save a lot more than $15 million out of the system. Oh, exactly. And it's, it's definitely a pay-forward type donation. And I think Chancellor Barge's vision is one where she would like to see exactly that the money's leveraged at a number of levels. And the effect is essentially far greater than the initial investment and donation. So, absolutely, it's the the plan is to uh, is to multiply this a number of times, and then the payoff is obviously uh, where the research will be translated into action. Now, I'm assuming this is not going to be the you know even with great studying, this is not going to be available for everyone. And you touched on infrastructure and facilities. Do we have? the network, the infrastructure in place right now for a huge influx of seniors needing seniors' homes, needing darts vans, needing whatever else. Is that in place, or are we looking at a you know billions of dollars that we need to be investing? You know, that's an interesting question. And, and down at Queen's Park last night when this announcement was made, I was having a number of conversations with people saying that uh, if you think that um, the baby, the front wave of the baby boomers is about sort of 68, in 12 years' time, at 80 years of age, um, we're going to be looking at uh, where a lot of people begin to lose their mobility. They begin to uh, not drive as much, or uh, some people uh, don't drive for a number of health reasons. Some people become less mobile physically. And the short answer is no, we're really not prepared. And I think that when you look at the research infrastructure cycle as being about 12 years, and this is a, you know, a conversation I had with Professor Jim Dunn, and uh, what he said was that now is the time where we need to start planning these things to actually have them in place. So I, I'm, I'm pleased that the timing of the announcement is probably in enough time to put something like this in place. But it's going to take some real, uh, I think, uh, tough decisions, and some, but some ones that will reap dividends in the future. Stepping back a little bit here, I, I've been reading that 
some of the studies, many of the studies perhaps with aging that have been done recently or in the last number of years have dealt with medications and trying to balance things. Do our bodies change dramatically? The chemistry of our bodies change dramatically so that if you were to give me a medication at 40, it would maybe have a vastly different effect than if you gave it to me at 75 or 80? I think there are some medications that would follow that pattern, and I definitely know that uh, the program of aging itself fundamentally affects how things work at a cellular level. So there's a lot of processes that just don't function as well. There's a lot of processes that might be there that weren't there when we were younger. So a lot of that is the, is the, the true biology of aging. But then add into that the exposure to uh, different environmental factors, and you've got all kinds of other things as well. So in short, the answer to your question is yes. Um, but it's pretty specific to the types of medications that are out there. But absolutely, aging alters a lot of things, there's no question. And do we know these things? Is, is this an area that we know a lot about, or is this an area that we have just are scratching the surface on? I think it's an area that we, we know something about. We, we understand uh, fundamental differences between the way older people metabolize certain drugs or um, take certain medications having a different effect. But uh, by, all, by no means do we know, I think, it, at this point, enough to be able to say for the gener- an entire generation of people that are going to be in their 80s and 90s, as you mentioned, 25% of Canadians over the age of 65 in the next sort of, um, uh, I guess, about 20 years, I mean, that, that's, that's going to have a phenomenal difference on how we view older people in our society, at least I, I hope it will. Just before I let you go, uh, $15 million is an awful lot of money, uh, more than I'm ever going to be able to give you, unfortunately. But I'm wondering, is that a, in the big picture, when you're looking at what you need to do the kind of studies and to, to look into all this, is that a giant, is that the main part of the iceberg or is that the tip of the iceberg that's needed? I think what I would call it is a huge head start. It's an absolutely fantastic uh, gift and, and we're really obviously pleased to receive it. Um, you know, on behalf of McMaster, it's, it's been outstanding. But, I mean, it, it's the beginning for us. It's an absolutely new era. It obviously sows the seeds for so many things going forward. And, uh, you know, we're very happy to receive it. And uh, the, the folks like myself at the McMaster Institute for Research and Aging are, are just thrilled to see uh, what we can do with this. But uh, as I said to somebody last night, great, great gift, great announcement. Now the hard work starts. So uh, yeah, strap your boots on and uh, let's get something done with this money. Well, the good news is too, is that uh, if if my experience is worth anything, people like to give money to things that affect them. And if everybody is getting older and we have such a huge influx of people, you have to believe a lot of them are going to start saying, you know what, I've got a few bucks and I want to give it somewhere. This is a good spot. I I have no problems with that as a fundraising drive. How's that? Uh, Thanks for that. Dr. Stuart Phillips from uh, McMaster, from the the Director of Physical Activity Center of Excellence, Director of McMaster Center for Nutrition, Exercise, and Health Research. Doctor, thanks for doing this tonight. My pleasure, Scott. It's uh, 15 million bucks towards aging studies. And as I say, like it or not, and most of us don't like it, we are doing everything possible to not let ourselves believe that we are heading down that road other than staying alive. If we're on the right side of the grass, that's a good place to be. But we are all heading down that road. 15 million bucks is a start for um, for some of those things that we're all going to face. I mean, I'm certainly, for myself, hoping that it's a lot of years from now before I need to start thinking about senior care and mobility and independence and things like that. I hope. I pray. But 
you know what? There's a lot of people out there who are starting to look at it now and, and are facing this now and are concerned about it now. There you go. McMaster is once again for, as it is in many areas, is leading the way for, for studying this stuff. And hopefully, hopefully we'll find new ways to allow people as they get older to stay in their homes, to stay active, to stay driving, to stay independent. It's a lot better, it seems, and certainly an awful lot cheaper than having millions of new people seemingly in seniors' homes that we don't even have yet. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. Are you a fan of Canadian university sports? And by fan, what I mean is, do you ever make an effort of any kind to pay attention? I mean, not if you're flipping the channels and someone says it, would you make an effort to go to a McMaster football game? Would you make an effort to turn on to cable 14 to see a game? Would you flip somewhere in the paper to look up a score? That kind of thing. Are you a fan of Canadian university sports? Because something happened today in an attempt to broaden that base, whether you are or are not for the Well, the third time in recent years, the name of Canadian University Sports has been changed. Originally, a few years ago anyway, it was the Canadian Inter-University Athletic Union, the CIAU. That got changed to Canadian Inter-University Sports, CIS. And today, it got changed again to U Sports. Single letter, U, capital U, Sports. With a new logo that the U kind of looks like a U on a varsity, a letter jacket with a red maple leaf in there. And the idea is that it's both French and English. U sports could work for both. It's easy to spot. It's clear. It's crisp. And hopefully, they say, hopefully the people behind this believe this will appeal to a younger demographic because they are trying to get younger people interested. Well, joining us to talk about this and to offer some insight about the idea behind this. Glenn Grunwald, who's the McMaster Director of Athletics and Recreation. You may know him better as a former general manager of the Toronto Raptors and New York Knicks, but he is now at McMaster, has been for a few years now. Glenn, thanks for doing this. Scott, thanks for having me on. Um, I just sort of outlined a sort of a brief vision or thought behind this. From your understanding, why why make a change this way for the Canadian University sports? Why, Why this? Well, I, I have to say, I don't think our, our current brand, the CIS brand, which is CIS, SIC, and, and how do you pronounce that? Uh, that's the French version, SIC. CISIS, you know. Yeah, CISIC, really yeah. Of, so, so and I bet if you walk to, uh, you know, 10 people on the street and ask them what the CIS stands for, they would think it belongs to some security agency in Canada. <laughs> that's true. So, so it's not that. So, so you know, the brand was not strong. It did not have uh, great recognition in in the community, and so uh, we decided to make a change to try and increase the the uh, the appeal and the notoriety of Canadian university sports. And and youth sports was what what we what they came up with. And I think it's 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 really good. And I think first of all, you at least know it's a sports organization, even if you don't know it's anything about the. Uh, uh, universities, but I, I think it will be a lot more appealing, and I think will will help us start to tell the tale of all these great uh, student athletes that are participating and doing great things on the field and in the classroom and in the community. You have now been here for 
well, you've been in Canada for a long time, but you've been at McMaster now for, I mean, a couple of years, roughly. Um, you are now well-versed in Canadian university sports. You know what it's all about. You've worked with the athletes. You've worked with the administrators. You've got a pretty firm, well, more than a pretty firm handle. You have a very good handle on Canadian university athletics now. And you're a guy who grew up in the NCAA system, in the American system. You understand that one. What's the, besides the obvious in which is scale, I guess. What's the big difference between the two? I think in Canada sports, it's much more student athlete focused in terms of trying to deliver a great experience uh, for for those student athletes that are participating it. Participating in it. Not not that it doesn't happen in the United States in the NCAA, but in certain sports, certain revenue sports, the the primary focus there is revenue generation because. It is such a big revenue generator, and 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 often I think, and I've you know seen this, uh, you know that decision uh, to do what's better to raise money and cre- increase revenue often gets in the way of what's best for the student athlete. We don't have any revenue generating sports, do we? Well, we generate revenue, but they're not generating the the millions upon millions of dollars that uh, that two sports in particular generate in the United States: men's basketball. And college football; uh, those 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 are the backbone upon which uh, all the other sports are, are financed, and all the other athletic departments are financed uh, in in the United States. One of the comments that was made today by um, Graham Brown, who's the CEO of now of UU uh, Sport of University Sports here, is that the demographic that your the the university goes after eighteen to thirty four, the age group that would start in university and then follow up, is really hard to get and really hard to attract sponsors. And so part of the idea behind this is if we make something attractive and as you say, appealing and understandable and instantly recognizable, maybe we get more sponsors to sign on and be part of this, which presumably would then help us build up the sports and have better facilities and on and on and on. How hard is it? For a Canadian university, even a big one like McMaster, how hard is it to get sponsors for sports? Well, well, the issue is there's a, there's so many people out there chasing those sponsorship dollars, and I think, you know, I, I think one of the things that that ultimately the university sports in Canada has to do is they have to unify. And 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 Graham Brown, this new CEO who came from Rugby Canada, is looking at the model that maybe Hockey Canada used uh, to sort of, uh, uh, you know. Uh, have one group out there selling for 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 the teams and for the schools and the conferences and 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 so we've we're we're trying to move down that road too so that when when a sponsor gets a call he doesn't get a call from five or six different schools and two or three different conferences and 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 the national uh body uh so so I think we can do a lot better in terms of making our 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 sport as as a sports property uh, more appealing to to potential sponsors just by making it simpler and easier to understand, and then by also creating greater numbers of of uh, of inventory and and, and potential uh, uh, advertising people. And that's that would be what you're talking about is on a national scale. What about Glenn Grunwald, well known guy in the community, well known guy in this area from all you've done in the past? You walk into a local business. I don't know if you do this often, but to say, hey, look, could you sponsor one of our teams, or we're interested? What's the response like to that to the smaller ones specifically for McMaster? It's very good, very good. We have uh, some great sponsors uh, from from the community. Uh, Basilic uh, Restaurant right here in Westdale does, does tremendous work with us. Peter Pitt. So, so we we have a, a lot of great local sponsors, and then we have 
a, a big big company like RBC that has really stepped up and and does does lots of things for our department and our student athletes. The biggest challenge, maybe I would think, is still going to be capturing eyeballs. Though you guys have done very well, I thought this year. McMaster football has averaged about forty eight hundred fans per game. That's third in Ontario behind Carlton and they get a bit of a boost because they have the Panda game that gets 24,000 which helps their average and and Queens which has a brand new stadium so people are coming out to see but you've been able to get people into your stadiums but not everybody can. Why is it so hard to convince people to come out and watch Canadian athletes? Uh, Well, I don't think people know about it. I I think... uh we we had uh, one of our local sponsors, the Leggett Auto Group, had a had a employee night at our our game right before Thanksgiving, and I sat next to one of the general managers from their Kia dealership, and he was saying, "Man, I've never been here before. This is awesome." So I think if people come out and see what's going on, have some fun, see all the young people running around going crazy, uh, like Hamilton in particular is has a great opportunity to experience CIS football. Right here on November 26th when we host the Vanier Cup, which is a tremendous event. So, so if you're a sports fan, certainly if you're a football fan, you want to come out to, uh, to Tim Hortons Field on November 26th. And if you just want to have fun and, and with a family, come out too and see what's going on with CIS Sports. I mean, you sports, there I go. <laughs> I was going to say it, but then I thought, I don't want to correct Glenn Grunwald. So, yeah, so it's, it'll take a little getting used to. It will. It'll, it'll take some building, but like I said, if, if people come out, check it out, and see what a great experience it is, and get to know a little more about what's going on with these student-athletes, I think that's what we're trying to do. Trying to expose it, put a spotlight on these things, and then I think it'll just take care of itself. One of the funny things is that there are always going to be, Glenn, and I I don't think you would disagree with this, there are always going to be sports. First of all, you're always going to be compared to American universities. I mean, I don't think it's avoidable. And so there are always going to be sports where you are going to fall short when it comes to a comparison. It's just, it's, it's inevitable. They have so much more money and they can draw the, from everywhere. But then last year, I ended up writing a piece because your volleyball team, your men's volleyball team goes down to Ohio State, one of the top teams in North America, and you guys sweep them. And I had more people writing saying, really? You're talking McMaster, like McMaster and Westdale, Maroon. They beat Ohio State. There was a shock value that you guys, in the sports where the finances are not completely imbalanced, you guys are able to compete. Uh, That's a great point. And like I, I like to say that, we finished second in the in the Canadian university sport world because we lost to Trinity Western in the finals, but we actually won the NCAA's because Ohio State went on and won the national championship <laughs> in the United States. So, so that shows how competitive a lot of our sports are, and I think we can continue to to improve on that. We're we're partnering with national sports organizations to make sure we're we're part of the. Uh, uh, national sports development model, and we can be a big part of that. So, and if we can keep great Canadian athletes in the country, I think our our whole nation, our our whole Olympic uh, movement, will be a lot stronger because of it too. The other thing that's going on right now, as well as this rebranding, is in dribs and drabs. I'll call it that. It's maybe an insult to say it that way, but in dribs and drabs, you guys are landing back on broadcast TV. I know Sportsnet picked up three or four football games from around the country this year, and CHCH is doing uh, one of the Ontario semifinals and then the Yates Cup game for the football. 
I, I guess it's kind of old fashioned in some case now to be talking about broadcast TV, but is that still an important component of getting your people seen? Uh, absolutely. And it's a little bit of a chicken in the egg, right? Because if we can't get on television and get that kind of exposure, it's, it's tough to develop the, the more fans that don't, don't see it. So, uh, you know, Sportsnet has been a good partner. CHCH is stepping up here locally. And I think we just need to continue to improve on it. And it's really frustrating for us here because, uh, you know, Canadian broadcasters are not under any obligation from the CRTC to, to carry amateur sport in Canada. And they really should be because it's so easy for them to just pick up the already existing broadcast from U.S. sports and for, 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 those broad, for those producers of those sporting events, it's just gravy. Whatever Canada will play, fine. It's, you know, it's a couple thousand dollars or something. When here we still have to incur the costs of producing those events. So that's, that's a real challenge. And Chris Overholt, who's the president of the COC, has been lobbying for that for some time. And I think all amateur athletes, and including youth sports, uh, would really benefit if we could ever get the CRTC to step up and do the right thing. Well, I thought, and I, I may be wrong, but I thought when TSN got all those new channels a few years ago and Sportsnet got all the new channels, that one of the things that they had lobbied for was, we will be showing a lot more Canadian amateur sports. This will be our way with all these extra platforms to show and to expose Canadian amateur sports to the rest of the country. And then as soon as they got them, well, let's just show the Leaf game on five channels simultaneously. Yeah, yeah that's very helpful. I can watch it on ten different channels. Uh, <laughs> and the game from the uh, Florida Panthers versus the Tampa Bay Lightning on six different channels. No, it, it, yeah. it seemed like it was... I, it seemed to me that it was prom- one thing was promised, and and I grant you, and and again, you pro- I don't know if you'll agree or disagree. The numbers, the ratings numbers, may be very small if you put Canadian University Sports on there to start with. The uh, but you're starting from somewhere, right? And I, and I think again, it's it, it, it's a fun event, and and if we need to tell the stories behind it, like the Hamilton Spectator has been a great partner for us in connection with the Vanier Cup, and and putting on uh, the countdown to the Vanier Cup on the front page and, and putting advertising in. And, and we need to even increase that further by telling stories about what are the teams that are doing well out west? Who's going to come out of the Atlantic? Is Lavelle still going to dominate? So, and, and the stories behind those teams, who the coaches are and who the players are and what those personal stories are. You do a great job of that for McMaster, but we need to make it even bigger and broader and have more newspapers do the same thing. Just before I let you go, we just got a minute or two left here. Um, you sports were, were the athletic directors like yourself involved in? Did they bring forward a bunch of different ideas and say, "Hey, choose one," or did they just bring this and say, "Here it is"? Uh, no, they the, the 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 leadership of the U Sports <laughs> uh, hired a a top notch brand development agency. Two guys basically from Vancouver that have done tremendous work. And, and if you want to see the story behind it, go to usports.ca and there's a video there that has, has these, these guys talking about their development process. It's pretty fascinating. And it tells a story about why they did what they did and why we wound up with usports. So there weren't other options that it was chosen from. You didn't have a, a group meeting and sit down and it was going to be U Sports or something else or something else. This was the one that was they came forward with and everyone said, yeah, that, this is it. 
we we had a presentation from from Graham Brown and uh, and at our AGM in June, and uh, they presented this this one proposal and it received overwhelming support from from all the ads and other administrators in the room. You, uh, as I let you go, you guys have a big game this weekend with uh, with football. Kind of your season on the line. Well, it's certainly a big game, uh, but we'll be in the playoffs one way or the other. I think if we win, we'll host a home playoff game on November fifth. But if we lose, then we'll be hosting a home game on the twenty ninth of October. So, so we'll got- be in the playoffs. It's not the End of the line, uh, but it is a big game, and Western has been very dominant this year. So it should be an exciting game. Our defense has been tremendous. Their offense has been awesome, so it's going to be a great matchup. Glenn Grunwald, Athletic Director, Director of Athletics and Recreation. We won't leave out your recreation side of this. Um, For McMaster University, appreciate the time as always. Thanks. Scott, thank you. Uh, Really an interesting concept behind this, that a new logo, a, a, a an easier now. Glenn is absolutely correct about one thing. If you saw the old CIS SIC logo, it wasn't easy to say. It wasn't easy to look at. It wasn't easy to navigate through the French, the English, the combination. And as he's right, it looks CIS isn't CIS the security service in Canada. So it's you know it, it's not unique. So at least U Sports is something that is clean and unique. Will it be enough? to entice some people to check out university sports? I don't know. I don't know. But at least you can now talk about it, presumably. And when you say U sports, you don't have to explain yourself, unlike when you said CIS. And people go, huh? What? Who? Now at least, oh, it's sports. Okay. And U sports. I can figure out you. Okay, university. Now I get what you're talking about. Okay. So at least it's a start. I don't know whether this is going to, I have doubts whether this alone is going to move the needle as far as getting more people to buy in. But I will tell you what will. And it's what we talked about just a couple of minutes ago. There's always going to be a disadvantage and a problem if you are relying solely on basketball and football to be the things that will drive. Those get big audiences, but they are going to be compared to the U.S. schools. And you look at a game at McMaster, even with 5,000 people, doesn't quite match a game at at Michigan with 110,000 people. It just doesn't. I'm sorry, it doesn't. As far as audience, as far as participation, all that kind of stuff. But... In the sports that don't have vast amounts of money in them, McMaster and other Canadian schools have shown themselves to be competitive. Things like track and field, cross country, volleyball is a great example. Again, last year, they went down and they beat, they swept the eventual NCAA champion. So in those sports, if if they could somehow market almost, you think if they could market those ones, yeah, have the big ones still going, but really point out the fact that the sports that you don't see perhaps as much because they're not quite as front and center, these are the best that don't, we're not second nature to the, to the NCAA in these sports. We are the best in North America right here. You can come and watch our volleyball as an example, and it is the best level of University Volleyball in North America. You don't have to watch NBC. You don't have to watch some of these other U.S. channels. It's right here. If they could somehow figure out how to market that and get that to catch on, then you got a chance. It'll take work. It'll take time. I don't know if a logo is going to do it by itself, but it has a chance. 
but it's got to be very smart how they do it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900 CHML. The Ontario government plans to introduce legislation next spring that will ban scalper bots, bots, robots, basically computer programs that when tickets go on sale for a concert, major concert, minor concert, whatever, usually a major concert, these computer programs will dial in, will get into the system, will buy up so many of the tickets that the average fan who is a just a fan of a group can't actually get the tickets. We saw this, and what really set this off was we saw this happen with Tragically Hip, their last tour a couple months ago, that all of a sudden, like instantly, the second tickets went on sale, they were gone. But all of, you go and you look, and on the secondary sites, there are loads of Tragically Hip tickets, of course, at hugely marked up prices. Well, a guy who I'm guessing, and I'm only guessing on this one, but I'm guessing has probably borne the brunt of some fans' wrath for this, even though I don't think it's his responsibility, would be Scott Warren, the general manager of Core Entertainment Global Spectrum, First Ontario Place. Um, he uh, He's the guy who runs the whole thing. He's the guy who brings the concerts in here, Garth Brooks and Paul McCartney and on and on. Um, Scott, thanks for doing this, first of all. Absolutely. Good to be with you. I'm guessing when you have a big concert and the tickets go on sale and 30 seconds after they go on sale that fans can't get them because they're sold out, even though that's really not your problem, I'm betting that you hear about it from fans. Well, yeah, you do hear about it, but I think most of the time it's a result of not understanding um, the the supply and demand issue. Tragically Hip is a perfect example of that when because it because of, of of Gord's condition and because it was the last tour, the, the the demand for that show was astronomical. I mean just it was off the off the chart, unlike anything we've seen. And we've seen a lot with Garth Brooks and McCartney this past year. Uh, it was unlike anything we had seen. And and so people immediately think that the bots grabbed up all the tickets, but the, but that's actually not the case. Uh, certainly wasn't the case in in, in uh, the show that they did in our building. So when you okay, so you're in the office and tickets are about to go on sale. Let's say it's 10 a.m. on a Monday and tickets are going on sale at 10 a.m. You can have your computer open and see who's waiting online and how many tickets are and all that kind of stuff. That's all available to you in real time, correct? Yes, we can see what's available. And, and what happens when it goes on sale? You got to keep in mind that. For the hip, for example, let's say we had fifteen thousand tickets available uh, for sale, um, you know, and let's say you have thirty thousand people wanting tickets. Well, as soon as it goes on sale, as soon as the the floodgate opens for sales, immediately all the tickets that are available get consumed in people's uh, shopping carts, right? Because because they've got the opportunity to kind of you know put in their credit card information and whatever. So they've got, it, it, they immediately get sucked up to, in, into everyone's shopping carts. And so if you're trying to get on, you're like, oh, they're gone already. Right. And so you have 30,000 people in the queue, and presumably they're not buying one ticket. They probably want two. And Absolutely. there's 15,000 seats, so that probably means about one in four actually are going to be able to get their hands on a ticket. Correct. And, and, and so, but again, you know, what happens is that they all appear to be gone instantly because they're, because they're in people's shopping carts, and the people can can decide, oh, no, I don't want them, or, oh, I didn't realize it was that much, or I can't find my credit card, or my credit card's expired, and then they go back into the <laughs> system again to get sucked up by someone else. 
But instantly, I would guess that the people then who log in at 10 o'clock and three seconds and get turned away that they can't get a ticket, the immediate response is, it's the bloody bots that have already bought up all the tickets. It's the scalpers who have bought them, and I can't get my hands on one. Absolutely. And the fact is, if you take a look at our uh, our Tragically Hip show, for example, 95% of the ticket sales were deemed to be legitimate, meaning meaning maybe 5% went to these, these bots or scalpers, but 95% of the tickets went to fans. And, but but what, what's interesting about that is, is people don't necessarily want that answer. They want tickets. They don't want information. They, they want tickets. So, so me saying 95% were legit, they're like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. I didn't get tickets. So they're not happy about it regardless of the reality. But, that Scott, is, is there any way to know... So when, when you're watching the computer and you see the fans are lined up, you see all the people in sequence, we've got 30,000 people waiting to get in and we've got 15,000 tickets. Is there any way to distinguish in that list of people who are the bots, who are the computer programs, and who are actual human beings? Uh, well, that's sort of behind the scenes. on, on our uh, In terms of our box office, no. We, we, we don't see any of that. We just see ticket purchases. We we don't actually, but Ticketmaster on a major on sale like that, or probably actually on any on sale, they are busy weeding out things. Like there would be, uh, uh, I've seen when people have tried to purchase tickets, but it's it becomes it's from an IP address that they know has historically been um, maybe scalpers or whatever, and and so they they don't allow them to get through, you know. And again, what happens is just like any other situation when. when when Ticketmaster creates a defense to these sort of things, um, you know, there's somebody working really hard to get around it. <laughs> and so the, 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 there's this constant battle of you, you put up a, the, the, def, the defense and then a bot, you know, programmer gets kind of gets around it. So then Ticketmaster then has to go back and, and build another defense. And then they work hard to go around that one. So it's just a constant battle in that sense. Um, but they do a good job. It'll be interesting to see how this legislation uh, pans out. But even if you did, even if your system, your system, even if your system allowed you to distinguish between a robot who's doing this or a computer program and a person, in with the speed with which the tickets are being sold online now, could there really be any way, unless you had a vastly more advanced system, is there any way you could manually block anybody, or is it just way too fast to be able to sort through it like that? Why I don't know personally. I don't know that we'd be able to see it. I know Ticketmaster has you know programs that that block certain IP addresses that become that that they know historically are, are problematic. But I don't know that it, you know if it's not one that's historically been a problem, whether or not we you'd be able to see that. Um, so I don't know that that that's that it works. I think it's interesting because you know in Garth Brooks' situation, it's it really became like I said with the hip. It's a it's a supply and demand issue with Garth Brooks. He made sure by doing five shows over four days that the, that the supply met the demand. And as a result, you don't really get the secondary ticketing issues. If the hip did five, six, seven nights at the arena, like based on the demand of this particular show, yeah, you probably wouldn't have the issue. But, but not, every, not every artist can do that, obviously. So it's, uh, especially with, with uh, Gordon and his health, there's no way that that would work. Um, it, it was just really a supply-demand issue. Is there any way, once the tickets have been sold, that you could sort out whether or not they were scalped? I mean, once upon a time, it seems to me that once upon a time, police would occasionally 
go outside and if someone was scalping, give a ticket. I, I've never seen outside First Ontario Centre, and I don't know that this is your issue, it's more of the police, I've never seen a police officer stopping a scalper or ticketing someone for overcharging for a ticket. Yeah, well, we certainly, I don't, I don't know if they've been charged. We've certainly uh, um, have asked people to get off the property, um, but, it, but it is public property as well, right? So it's a, it's a bit tricky. Um, but we do, uh, whether they've been ticketed or not, I'm not certain. Um, but it is, you know, it, it is a, it is a, uh, it is an issue. Uh, part of the problem too is that people buy, right? The, the, the secondary markets, uh, these secondary ticketing sites, they have, they have customers. If they didn't have customers, they wouldn't have, uh, it, it wouldn't, it wouldn't happen, right? But, but again, they've got customers and so they, so it continues to happen. And, and, and you can try to do paperless tickets and, and some shows do that where you've got to, show the credit card that you paid with at the at the door uh that helps to sort of defer some because you know a a, a scalper in california isn't going to send his credit card uh to someone in hamilton uh to use for the night so um so there's some of that that you can do it's just um you just, you just can't you do your best to manage it but you can't control it well no and i'll tell you uh, my wife and daughter went to see adele in toronto at the air canada center a couple of weeks ago and they had that system she had through her website hired this british small british startup company that did that kind of thing so you had to pick up your tickets at will call you had yeah. to be there the buyer had to be there in person and it had to be with the credit card they purchased she couldn't even pick up i bought the tickets and she couldn't even pick up the tickets unless I changed it into her name. Problem with right. that is, ide- theoretically, it's great because you can't now resell them. Downside is people were going out of their minds because the lineups were so long they missed the first half sure. hour of the concert because they were in line for an hour and a half. Absolutely. I mean, and that's sort of like, well, you know, what do we, what do we want? Like, how do we, how do we fix that? Um, and I think that's part, you know, that's really part of the problem. You just can't, um, you, you, it's just, it's so big. And you can try to fix it on one hand, but you got another problem on the other hand, and that becomes part of the issue. Just before I let you go, Scott, with what you said at the very beginning of this, even if the Ontario government puts in laws that says no more bots, no more computers, no more mass buying by people who are going to scalp them, all the rest, is because of the way that the system works, because some people almost always are going to not be able to get tickets, are you always... Are they are are there always going to be people who still believe the system is rigged against them just because, you know, I didn't get a ticket, so there must be something wrong. I was on at ten o'clock when they opened. I didn't get a ticket. There has to be something wrong with the system. It seems to me that no matter what law you put in, there's always going to be complaints. Well, and and yeah, absolutely. But part of the problem with the law for Ontario is that the bots and scalpers aren't necessarily from Ontario. Ah, the biggest the biggest areas are California, New Jersey, Tennessee. So yes, you can put a law in place in 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 Ontario, but it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's 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 a it's a gesture, and 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 it shows they care, but the reality is that's not where they're coming from. That's not that's not where they're where it's happening, and so it's not really going to solve the problem. Really, really interesting stuff. I really appreciate you doing this, Scott. I know you're out uh, with your daughter right now, so I appreciate you taking some time. Yeah. Thanks so much. Absolutely happy to help. That is uh, Scott Warren from Global Spectrum. Um, here's one of the other things about this. Let me play devil's advocate for a second, because again, I understand you go online, if you go out to buy a ticket for a concert, and let's use Paul McCartney as an example, because he came here as the Tragically Hip did for one show, and there was immense amounts of interest in getting tickets. So you're, you're waiting in the queue. You go on to the Ticketmaster or the whichever website in time so that you're on there. 
And then all of a sudden the tickets are going to go on sale at 10 o'clock. And I've done this myself. And at exactly 10, you're watching the clock at the bottom of your computer screen. And the second it flicks the 10, you hit refresh and you are ready to buy your tickets. And the wheel of doom starts spinning. And all of a sudden you're basically three minutes, four minutes. It's spinning. It's spinning. You're watching the clock. You're going, why am I not getting in? You finally get in and it says no tickets. No tickets in your price range are available. And so you're saying, how is it possible that I was here exactly at the time tickets go on sale and I didn't get them? Well, Scott just explained to you why. But let me play devil's advocate for a second. If you go to pick a store, Walmart, every single item, I think, every single item that is on the store shelves in Walmart has been purchased from someone else, some other distributor, some builder, some creator, some product inventor, whatever. Every single item on the stores was bought from somewhere else, placed by Walmart, placed on the shelves, and the price was increased so Walmart would make a profit. Right? That's that's free market economy. That's capitalism. That's the way we do things. You buy from someone and then you sell it for a marked up price because you're the seller. How is that different from buying from a scalper operating with higher price tickets. Now, I know it's unpopular. I know it's not what people want to hear. I I deserve to get the tickets for the price that the artist set. Well, maybe you do. But is it really any different from any every other business essentially that we have? Stores buy product for a lower price. The stores would be the scalper, the lower price, the place they buy it from, the, the, the maker would be the arena, and then they resell it at a profit. It's, it's, it's based on the same economic model as every other business in our culture. And so it always seems to me a little odd that we get very, very bent out of shape about scalping tickets very bent out of shape about it, but we don't have the same problem. When was the last time you walked into a store and said, I demand that I be able to buy this product at the exact same price you purchased it from the maker? Wholesale price. I demand the price that you paid. Well, they would say, no, that's not what we do here. Or when was the last time you said, I demand Walmart, I demand Sears, I demand whoever, that you don't buy this product and sell it to me at the higher things. Send it back. You're not allowed to buy it. I'm only going to be able to buy it from the distributor. Well, we don't do that. But concert tickets, for some reason, we see it very, very differently. We see it as a completely different thing from every other business. And we get very bent out of shape about it. Maybe it's because of the emotional connection to some concerts. Maybe it's because of the limited numbers. I'm not sure why it is. Maybe it's because we believe that in this particular case, the markup isn't a few dollars or a few percentage points. It's vastly marked up. So now we want to go see a concert. We're paying five times, 10 times the price. I understand that frustration. I really do. And and again, I'm, I'm, I've never, that I know of, I'm trying to think now, I don't think I've ever bought a ticket from a scalper. I don't think, certainly not recently. If I have, I can't remember one. I don't love the idea, but it is odd that this is the only place in our economic model 
where we have a problem with someone buying from point A, marking up the prices and reselling it to the public, and we say that's not allowed. But anyway, Ontario government says they're finding ways. They're going to try and find ways to make it not allowed. Scott Warren, though, had a very interesting point is you can make a law in Ontario, but if the people are buying it from out in California or New York or wherever else, how are you going to enforce this? It's it's very complicated. All these things, all these computer things now make our life very, very complicated. Easier in some ways, more complicated in others for sure. The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 7 to 9 on AM 900, AM 900 CHML.